Welcome to Metal Injection Squared Circle Pit. Today's special guest, author of Nitro, Guy Evans. And now, here is your host, Rob Paspani. It is officially April, which is crazy to say. It is WrestleMania season, arguably the, or inarguably the most unique WrestleMania season of all time. And welcome to another edition of Squared Circle Pit. My name is Rob. We are, of course, on Twitter, at Squared Circle Pit, no E in circle, also on Facebook. I'm Rob Injection on all social media. And uh, it's it's a wild time, <laughs> wild time for pro wrestling, lots of empty arena wrestling, and WrestleMania is this weekend. And uh, I'll go through my predictions for WrestleMania uh, at the end of the show. But first, I want to talk about my guest on this episode, and it is author Guy Evans. And if you ever found yourself a fan of WCW, of the Monday Night Wars, I highly, highly, highly recommend his book, Nitro. And uh, Nitro is essentially the story of WCW and the most complete story of WCW, as we talk about, because... Unlike all these other books, I feel with some of these other books, they only kind of got the perspective of the wrestlers, the one point of view. But Guy actually went and talked to the executives at Turner, at WCW, like all these people involved behind the scenes. And it gives you such a more complete picture. And there's so many things revealed in the book that even if you follow the story as I did, as it was happening and for the years after, there's so much in here that I had no idea about. <laughs> so... Let, we're going to talk to Guy, going to talk about his book, going to talk about he has some great advice on if you ever want to write a book or interview anybody, what you should do to be able to get these sort of pieces of information out of people. And so going to talk to Guy, and when we get back from the interview, I'm going to talk WrestleMania predictions on Squared Circle Pit. Now entering the Squared Circle Pit. I have somebody I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. He is the author of an excellent book that if you are a fan of wrestling history, a fan of WCW, I highly recommend you get. The book is called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. I have Guy Evans with me in Squared Circle Pit. Welcome, Guy. Thanks so much, Rob. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on. I love this book. I was a huge fan of WCW and more so a huge fan of all the backstage politics. And, mm. you know, uh, I definitely followed the quote unquote collapse of WCW very closely when it happened at the time and, mm. and afterwards. And, you know, I read like the death of WCW and, and you know, I, dirt sheets. And I have to say, uh, I thought I knew the whole story, but you absolutely do not know the full story or even half the story until you read this book. I'm assuming you yourself did a bit of history uh, before diving into this. And I was curious, like, were you yourself surprised at how much you unearthed <laughs> by doing this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the main reasons that I actually embarked on the project to begin with, Rob, is, you know, as someone who, like yourself, followed things very closely back in the day, you know, I had quite a few questions of my own that I didn't think had been perhaps adequately answered in other forums. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. But once I actually got into the project and started speaking to people and gathering materials and doing um, additional research, I was really blown away with what I uncovered. So we actually use that, you know, as, as the tagline in promoting the book that if you think you know the story, um, you may not even know the half because there's just so much in here, I'm, I'm proud to say, which hasn't been covered before and hasn't been discussed really in any appreciable detail. And hopefully that's what 
sets apart the Nitro book from maybe some of the other accounts that exist. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is because of who you interviewed, because really all the previous tellings of the story would essentially be from the wrestler's point of view, because it's the wrestlers who are speaking to the dirt sheets. And, and you know, like those are the only reporters reporting on it. Not to say it wasn't accurate. It was just the point of view of the wrestlers. Whereas you interviewed essentially all the big executives shy of Ted Turner himself, which I'm sure was someone you <laughs> were dying to talk to. And I think it gave a whole different perspective. No, that, that's right. And, you know, if people don't know, um, you know, over 120 people actually were interviewed for this project. And that includes people who work for WCW specifically, but also, as you mentioned there, people who also worked within the wider corporate structure of TBS. So, you know, I, I'm very pleased with sort of the, the breadth of input that I was able to get from across the organization. And you hear about a lot of people that I think have almost become sort of mythical figures over the years in the wrestling community. People like uh, Jamie Kellner, for example, people like Stu Snyder, people like Harvey Schiller. These are all people that we know had something to do with the WCW story. And I think there's been a lot of conjecture as to exactly what their involvement is. But in this particular book, you actually get the chance to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, um, as I directly asked them about a lot of things that really impacted on their tenure, either with WCW or with TBS itself. You know, in case you're wondering, you know, if you haven't heard of the book, well, why, why should I pick it up? Who cares about what uh, some random fan uh, from the UK has to say about the WCW story? Really, this book is is formed based on the opinions of, of, of people who are actually there. And my job really was to try to collect all of those different opinions and cross-reference it with um, some of the materials I was able to gain access to and put the book together. So as much as possible, I tried to veer away from kind of injecting my own opinion and my own take on what I think happened um, just because I didn't think it was particularly relevant. And I think it's a much more interesting and accurate story when the uh, the content is formed on the basis of the people who are actually there. Absolutely. And, and that actually brings up something I wanted to mention, which, you know, as I'm reading this book, I'm getting all these memories of, of like stories that happened as the timeline progresses. And just to give an example, one thing, there was always this myth that WCW was sold to WWE because Stu Snyder was was like best friend. The the WWE CEO or whatever was best friends with uh, was it Harvey Schiller? I, I might be getting the names wrong. Uh, with uh, Brad Brad Siegel, that's right. Brad Siegel, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and you went and you asked them both, like you you tackled it head on, and I was so like as I was reading, I was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to cover this this rumor and, and and like anytime i wonder that you always you always hit it on so i highly recommend it just for that but let's let's take a a step back how did you come to to start this project uh, i know you kind of mentioned at the top but like how did it how did the ball get rolling no i think that's an interesting story in itself so like uh, many other people at the time you know i was a big fan of wrestling in the, the mid to late 90s era and was actually made a fan by that particular era of the business and I followed actually WCW and WWF very closely. Even being over in the UK, it was a, a big deal for us at the time. You know, WWF had more of a presence in the UK, but even so, both organizations, um, and to a lesser extent, you know, ECW were, were really on on fire at that time, and it really was a mainstream thing, um, even across on on our side of the pond. So I, I was a, a big fan, followed it very closely. But once WCW went away, 
Um, that was really the extent of my interest in wrestling, to be completely honest. I think, uh, obviously, if you go back and look at the numbers, I wasn't alone in that. I sort of instinctively knew that it wasn't quite going to be the same when WCW um, was eventually sold. Um, and we sort of embarked on a very long period of there being an effective monopoly in the business. You know, I think I hung around probably for about a year or so through the invasion storyline and the NWO coming into WWF and all that kind of stuff, just kind of hoping that, you know, things would would turn out the way that I was uh, that I would find interesting as a fan. But somewhere around 2002 or so, I just kind of moved on to other things and and didn't really think about wrestling. Actually, bizarrely enough, until about 2010 or so, in fact, I think it was about late 2009, when I started hearing rumors that, you know, Hulk Hogan signed with this, this upstart company, TNA, and a lot of the, uh, the old characters from back in the day were going to be involved. And it seemed like on the surface, kind of an attempt to relive the Monday Night Wars almost, you know, with, with uh, the attempt to take on the WWE at the time. And so just out of curiosity, and I suppose out of nostalgia, I, I tuned into those shows when TNA went to Mondays, and it really got me thinking about wrestling again. And it got me kind of reminiscing on what a big part of my life it was. And uh, at that point, I started to dig into, as we mentioned earlier, some of those other accounts and takes on the story. And I found them all to be interesting and informative in their own way. But as I mentioned, as a fan, there were quite a few things that I thought hadn't been perhaps adequately covered or, or things that didn't quite add up to me. And so I really wanted someone to um, answer some of those questions. And after about three or four years of hoping that someone was going to do that, I kind of decided, I suppose around early 2015 or so, you know what, if no one else is going to do this, then I'm going to have a go. And uh, little did I know that that was going to start a three and a half year project, which, um, as I mentioned, came to include, you know, well over 120 people along the way. And what results is a, I think, almost a 600-page book in Nitro. So certainly I didn't realize what the outcome was going to be when I started, but but I'm very pleased about the outcome. It is a very long book, but fascinating. And it almost like, uh, I read it in parts. I would read like a big chunk you know, there'd be I like a, a, a Thanksgiving and then like I would, over Thanksgiving, I read like 150 pages, let's say, and then I kind of put it down and forgot about it for a few months and then come back to it. Anytime I come back to it, I would always be so gripped, like, oh, I need to keep going. Mm -hmm. And it kind of felt like, like the book itself feels almost like a mob movie mm. because the, the first part of the book is, is all about how like WCW is in the shits. And then Eric Bischoff comes in and then they turn it around and it's like the success stories, like all the successful mob hits of like, we got the NWO and that's firing and then this is happening. And, and it's like such mm -hmm. a fun ride initially. <laughs> and then I remember coming and like I was it, it was fun, like uh, be also just from the nostalgia purposes of just recounting like all these fun memories and then the further you get in the book it's like really like the last act of the mob movies when the cops are all on to them and then you know like everyone's getting getting and it's like it's it's much harder to get through and, and it i definitely the last half took me much longer than the first half just because it's so many failures but again i was just so, like how did you start convincing these people to talk to you was there like a person that was your liaison you know, I'm probably going to shock you with this, Rob, especially because I know, you know, you obviously have your contacts in, in the wrestling uh, industry and you've interviewed quite a few people. I actually started out not knowing a single soul in the wrestling business whatsoever. 
um, which some people find hard to believe, but it's 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 the truth. I really started from an absolute blank slate. I think a, a fella by the name of Rob Garner, who was one of the VPs with WCW, actually happened to be the first person that I talked to, and there wasn't any particular rhyme or reason for that. That was kind of early 2015, as I mentioned, when I was kind of figuring out what this was going to actually be about um, and seeing who would would actually be interested in in being interviewed. So if I could just cut in really quick. So did you essentially make like a whole chart of like WCW executives I want to talk to and then kind of like start hunting on LinkedIn or or what was that like? You know, if if I was to be totally honest, it's a great question. I think going back to that time, my mindset at the time was to actually have representation from all of the various divisions within the company. That's really what I was getting at. You know, I want to speak to a certain number of people who held key positions in all of these various divisions. But I think as time went on, it became pretty obvious to me that actually I need to think broader than that because a lot of times you get your best stuff from people who wouldn't immediately come to mind. You know, people that wrestling fans may or may not have actually heard of people who aren't necessarily well known to the public, a lot of times you you would get your best material from those people. So it went from, you know, I have to have representation from as many areas of the company as possible to actually, I need to cast a wide net and try to speak to as many people as as possible, period, with the understanding that, of course, you're not going to get the opportunity to speak to everyone who worked there. But the more people I spoke to, it was really kind of like um, a domino effect where, I think once people saw that it was a legitimate project and they were able to ascertain for themselves what my intentions were, and they were able to sort of develop a a bit of a rapport with me through that process, you know, people became very open to helping me get in touch with with other people. So it was kind of an exponential thing as the, the more I got into it, the more people I was introduced to, and it kind of snowballed from there. So you know, it wasn't a case of sitting down and, and necessarily writing out, you know, uh, 120 or 150 different names. Um, it's just something that organically kind of grew as time went on. That's awesome. And like in there also, you had clippings of like marketing materials and and, and mm-hmm. like scripts and, and all these unique assets, which mm-hmm. I found so fascinating. Were, were people just forthcoming with those or like what other stuff went into your researches? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think w- one of the things that I benefited from was um, the, the time in, in, in which I embarked on the project, you know, time was really on my side, you know, enough years had gone by where actually some of the bitterness that I think existed in people's minds about WCW. And that includes uh, not only the fan base, obviously, but, but also the people who work there, some of that had subsided a little bit, you know, a, a number of people right. who contractually wouldn't have been able to actually uh, speak to me for a book like this. Maybe if I would have started the project five or six years earlier, that wasn't a factor at this particular you know, point in time. And I think, you know, th- those two things combined meant that, again, people were very open and, and willing to help. And sometimes people would say, after we wrap up this call, let me go into the attic and see if I have any, you know, old notes or memos or folders relating to WCW laying around. And that's really the part of this that amazed me personally the most is just the extent to which people will really go to the ends of the earth sometimes to help you if they feel like your intentions are positive, if they feel like, you know, as much as humanly possible, you're trying to get to an accurate picture of what the story actually was. And once people kind of made that judgment for themselves, as I said, it was amazing to me to see how much they helped. And and I think, 
you know, that's that's another layer, you know, on, on top of everything else that we've talked about, which hopefully makes this uh, this book unique. Yeah. And even I'm thinking now, like someone like, for example, Chris Harrington, who is a big mm-hmm. historian and, and analyst of, of history, like he essentially was putting together spreadsheets of, of WCW salaries just based on various lawsuits and just documents right. found in lawsuits. Like, were you leaning on folks like that to kind of help you out? Or, or was it like a trade even where you were giving him documents that, that you acquired? You know, that's a, that's a funny question. Again, I have to say, you know, which again, some people find uh, maybe hard to believe. This was a one man project from start to okay. finish. And, wow. and, and maybe, and maybe that explains why it took so long. <laughs> you know, I, I wish now that you mentioned it, I wish I probably had been a little bit smarter and said, let me get, you know, a group of people together that can kind of help out with the research on this. Probably could have got it out a year earlier. <laughs> but I was I was very cognizant of the fact that a lot of what was being uncovered throughout this process had not been discussed before. I suppose that was probably part of my reasoning in terms of trying to keep things just to myself. Wider group of people that you share information with, obviously there's a uh, there's a potential there that you know things could could get out. Right. And I think there are three three or four you know pretty key developments in this particular story that this book brings out, which have not been discussed before, as I said, in any appreciable detail or any detail at all. And so those three or four things in particular, I was really keeping close to my chest. But I think uh, for book number two, I might take your advice on that one. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I definitely want to ask about book number two in a second. But just on that topic, absolutely, there were things uncovered that forget about, like, even hinted at that nobody ever even reported, especially mm-hmm. like the the first thing that pops into my head is how the FX deal uh, completely fell apart based on one person and one phone call and a mm-hmm. character who I've never even heard of. Like, I, I don't want to give it. Oh, wait, too much because it's a great part of the book. Although I, I feel like you have talked about uh, Lenita Erickson uh, on like Eric Bischoff show and all that stuff. But like that mm-hmm. whole story blew like that. I was reading that the way I imagine someone reads like a crime thriller. Like I couldn't wait mm-hmm. to get to the next page because it was like, what? Who is this woman that is set? Like, I mean, you, she helped put the, the death nail into the coffin of WCW, essentially. Like, when you kind of, like, as you're uncovering this, you're like, what, what did I just get myself into? Oh, no. There, there were so many moments like that that I would hang up the phone or I would go home because, of course, you know, um, I actually had the chance to speak to a number of people in person, face to face, and you usually get your best stuff, you know, doing that, to be honest. But mm-hmm. there were a number of times where I wrapped up an interview and I said, like, you know, oh my God, I can't believe it went in that direction. I can't believe that this particular person chose to divulge this at this particular time. And most of the time it would come without any kind of direct prompting. And that's something else that I suppose I I learned from doing this that I'd really try to pass on to anyone else writing a book or doing anything really that involves the input of many other people is just the value of listening, of asking an open-ended question sitting back and letting that person take it in whatever particular direction they want to take it in and letting the the, the cogs turn, so to speak, you know, and just sitting back and, and kind of watching that process. A lot of times you'll, you'll really be amazed with what comes out of that, you know, because if you start a phone call by saying, all right, you know, give me something juicy. I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book and I need a good story, right? Right. They're going to be guarded. <laughs> exactly. Any, anyone with any common sense is going to say, okay, I'm not, I, I don't like the vibe here. It's like, it, it seems like this person isn't being particularly, you know, professional with the way that they're doing this. So again, just, just asking very open-ended questions and just sitting back and listening and following up when necessary. You know, it could be, you know, two hours into a conversation, all of a sudden someone decides this is the right time to go down a road that you weren't 
anticipating. So you're absolutely right. You know, there were a number of times where I kind of shook my head like, you know, this is uh, unreal. Some of the stuff people will come out with voluntarily. And, you know, being a student of pro wrestling, uh, I imagine with some of these stories, you have to initially question the validity of it. Like what kind of... What like everyone's a worker, so how yeah. how did you go about confirming some of these stories? Did you need someone else to kind of verify it? It's an excellent point, and I, I should mention I think there were probably around eight to ten people whose contributions did not make their way into the book at all um, because of exactly what you're talking about. You know, because it it becomes quite clear I think sometimes when maybe someone does have an axe to grind, and maybe there is a a personal issue. Uh, between one person and another person or, or one person and a group of people. And I can speak, I, I can think of a few occasions where, you know, it became plainly obvious that the information that a person was offering, you know, wasn't accurate. And in terms of how I was able to verify that, you know, again, I think what really um, helped in my favor was having access to a lot of company materials that had really been under lock and key for the best part of two decades. You know, I was I was able to get my hands on a lot of documents and financial statements and emails and memos and all sorts of things. So if someone made a comment about WCW's financial performance in the year of 1995, I could just open my drawer and pull out the financial statement for that year and and verify for myself if that was accurate or not. And if you don't have those set of objective data, I suppose, to do that cross-referencing, then yes, you are kind of at the mercy of whatever you're being told on the other end of the phone. But I think what you do is you you couple you know, those objective sources of information with your own sort of common sense. And right. again, this is where listening is, is so important, really getting a feel for where this person is coming from. Are they looking at things in a any fair and transparent point of view, or does it appear, as I said before, that maybe they have an axe to grind and maybe there's some wounds that haven't really healed since the end of the company. So it's definitely a balancing act. And sometimes you hear something that cannot necessarily be verified, but you quote the person directly. And I think you see maybe a few instances of, instances of that in the book where I don't think it's uh, a negative to let the reader make up their own mind at times. If there was a meeting that, that took place between two people and we don't have a record of that meeting, and there is there, there isn't a you know a recording of that meeting. Well, I don't think it's particularly harmful to ask both sides what their opinion was of that particular meeting, quote them directly, and then let the the reader make up their own mind. So I think you'll see probably a few occasions of that in the book as well. Right. And what one such thing that comes to mind, an example of this, is the idea that WCW lost seventy or eighty million or whatever the number is in that last year they were in business or like the last few years, they lost tens of millions of dollars per year. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the book, Eric Bischoff makes the case that you can't really take that as gospel because of just how, what a complete mess the books were in WCW because essentially they were like the, his argument was like all pay-per-view revenue would be uh, under Turner home entertainment as opposed to WCW. So all of their pay-per-view revenue wouldn't be considered a profit. And the way they were cooking the books, they wanted to put more losses on WCW because they essentially knew they were offloading it as part of the merger. Would that be fair to say? Well, yeah, I think I would direct people to there's a particular chapter, chapter nine in the book, which is called an age old problem, where what I try to do is incorporate the opinions of a lot of 
people who worked on the financial side to really give you a, a sense of how the, the books were done, not only with respect to WCW, but also Turner as a whole. Because Turner as a company had a lot of very serious accounting problems. And, and for that reason, you do have to contextualize any reporting that you see in regards to WCW's profit or loss in a particular year, um, because how they actually arrived at that figure is really the most important thing. You know, you, you can't treat WCW the same way as you would an independent wrestling organization, for example. You know, I've, I've never ran an independent wrestling show, but I would imagine that it's fairly easy at the end of one particular show or a, a set of shows to sit down and lay out, here's what my my revenues were, here's what my expenses were in terms of putting on this, this show and making a, a pretty accurate judgment in terms of how successful that show was. WCW, again, by virtue of its placement within this corporate behemoth and one of 150 um, entities that were part of TBS Inc., it didn't benefit from that kind of straightforward analysis. So it's, it's a pretty complex, complicated picture. It's not to say that when WCW was losing money, it wasn't losing money. No one is, is saying that. And the opposite is also true. But in terms of how that figure was calculated, it's very, very important to understand what the 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 overarching or I suppose underlying factors were in terms of how that figure was was actually arrived at. So I would really direct people to chapter nine, um, which really breaks that down, I think in about five or six thousand words in a tremendous amount of detail. Yeah, you're right. We can't get, <laughs> can't really answer that in a quick podcast interview when you have 5,000 <laughs> words of analysis, but it was a very interesting perspective that kind of, kind of, you know, made me question my own thought process on like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it was a little uh, like the, the story wasn't fully told in the past. Uh, and, and I felt that way with, with a lot of things with WCW, but like in your personal opinion, from writing the book and from doing all this analysis, what do you think is the, the turning point? for WCW kind of, you know, going, not going under, but like the ship kind of starting to sink. Was it creative or was it the more business end of stuff with the the merger? Well, I, I've said in other interviews, I think that um, both things can be true at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. I think that obviously anyone would look at the last couple of years of WCW programming and compare it to maybe the two or three years that preceded that and come to the evaluation that obviously there was a drop-off in terms of the, the quality of the shows. You know, I think it would be difficult to make a case that that didn't happen. At the same time, you know, there were some very unfortunate things that happened to WCW on the business side, which also contributed and really accelerated its demise. So I don't really put myself in the camp of one or the other. I, I mm -hmm. have the opinion that, you know, after going through the process of doing the book that that both things can be true. You know, I think just to stick on the on the creative side for a minute, you know, I think one thing that became crystal clear to me the the, the more people that I spoke to is just again sticking on the creative side if you look at the the massive success of the NWO storyline and and the fact that this really gave you I think Scott Hudson is quoted in the book a sort of overarching storyline that could act as an umbrella for everything else that happened on the show. You know, obviously for a long period of time, that worked very well. And that particular uh, branding, the NWO, really helped WCW in terms of recruiting um, advertisers, which was a massive deal at the time. You know, remember this is before uh, streaming video and, and over-the-top stuff and on-demand video and everything that we have today. You know, at, at that particular time, 
WCW's ability to recruit advertisers was essential really to its continued success and continued existence within TBS. So by developing a storyline that really would make sense to someone sitting in a boardroom who knew nothing about wrestling, but if they were presented with the idea that there's this band of invading wrestlers from a rival company who are coming in and trying to take over, you know, all of a sudden that might make you sit up on your chair a little bit and say, well, this, this is something different. This isn't just two guys in their underwear hitting each other with chairs, which of course is the stereotypical sort of uh, idea of what wrestling is. So I think the NWO was tremendously successful. The problem, again, creatively was where do you go from there? How do you pivot out of the NWO storyline to something that is perceived as being potentially even bigger or, or somewhat close to that level? And if you go back and you look at the shows, and of course they're all available now in the network, I think you'll really see an aimlessness to WCW programming. Once the NWO fizzled out in, in sort of spring of 1999 or so, you look at everything that happened thereafter, and it's it's really, it appears like they're sort of grasping at straws, trying to do something that, you know, in one week is all of a sudden going to bring the audience back. It was kind of a gift and a curse, that particular storyline, because there was yeah. never really any consideration to how does this end up? And once we wrap this up, where do we go from here? I interviewed Eric Bischoff on my show, and uh, obviously you interviewed him in your book. And one thing that I asked him, uh, which you you also covered in, in far greater detail was, you know, what was the plan like to conclude the NWO story? Where was the story going? Mm -hmm. You know, it was something I wondered for 20 years at this point or a little less uh, since it's been a little less. But uh, he essentially said to me that, well, the plan originally was to do a, bland, a brand split and have NWO have its own show and WCW have its own show. That's where we were going. And then, you know, obviously they try that for one week. The ratings tank. The show was terrible. And they, they abandoned that idea. And then after that, they never really had, uh, an end goal. And that was in 97. Like you're saying in spring mm. of 99 is when it fizzled out. They were already kind of spinning the wheels in January of 98, essentially. Like after Sting won the title, which was in its own way a whole, like I, I still, my mind is like, I went back to watch it after reading your book and just how, incredibly they 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 mess that up whether it be the politics and like hogan convincing nick patrick or whatever it would just completely ruin that thing ruin the story they were building for 18 months in one night but it was crazy to think like from there they were still they they never recovered from that point and, and had a new end goal that's right and i think as fans you know we like to think that everything that's happening on the screen is part of this well thought out developed plan that was that was put on a wall somewhere and you know, they've kind of thought about where they're going to be six months from now and then backtracked and everything is meticulously laid out week by week. And of course, you know, if you speak to uh, Eric Bischoff, which as you mentioned, you have, you know, he'll tell you that at times certain um, elements of the show did work like that. You know, if they were working the next four weeks up to a pay-per-view and they knew there was going to be a, a match between two wrestlers, maybe they would work backwards and figure out what's going to be on Nitro 1, 2, 3, and 4 leading up to that. But a lot of the, the very best moments that we remember from this period, and this applies, I think, to both companies, you know, you think about Vince Russo's uh, creative philosophy and how he's described it, him, of course, being uh, the writer with with WWF and then eventually with with WCW, you know, you'll you'll see the same kind of thought process or the same kind of approach, which is once a show is over, let's evaluate what worked, what didn't work, and let's use that 
Uh, let's use the numbers. Let's let's use the feedback as a way of informing what we do the next week. So you know, I think that there are times where there, there are certain storylines that do benefit from being sort of meticulously laid out and knowing from the beginning exactly where it's going to end up, um, as you would probably see in traditional television, for example. You know, I don't think, with the possible exception of a show like Breaking Bad, I know that's one show that they sort of deviate from that typical structure, but I don't think you'd see a lot of shows where once they start putting together episode one, two, and three of a season, they don't have an idea of where it's going. But a lot of the things that we loved about wrestling back in the day was that spontaneity and was that actual chaos at times where you know, it seemed like anything could happen. And a lot of times that was because, you know, shortly prior to the show, or maybe even during the show itself, the people running the show didn't exactly know what was going to happen. So it kind of goes back to what I said before in terms of it's a gift and a curse, isn't it? Because, you know, it gives you those moments that you really want to see, but um, unless it's part of a sort of uh, well thought out structure, a lot of times the, the ending can be pretty disappointing for fans. I remember in the book you were, you wrote how like Eric Bischoff was sometimes writing the show as the show was going on, they would just kill the script. And then Tony and Scott Hudson or whoever would be working on like the first segment and they're getting pages for the next segment as it's going on, which, you know, in any other field of entertainment would be considered insane, <laughs> except for maybe, maybe Saturday night live uh, could be somewhat <laughs> similar, but even that I feel like they're all, set up so it's pretty wild and i think so that i think the nwo like not having a uh endpoint for the nwo was like one big roadblock that kind of accelerated the downfall but then the, the other was very much vince russo and i was so happy that you just essentially did the math <laughs> because for years vince russo was saying uh, you know, my whole job was to come in and to bring the ratings up. And, and I got the ratings up a, a certain amount. And when I left, the ratings went down. And, and you know, he, he has this whole stump speech that he's been giving for 15 years now. And, and you, I believe you even quoted him about this, but then you pointed out the inaccuracies in his uh, memory. I might be remembering this incorrectly, but I remember from what I, I recall, there was one specific episode where it was just such a huge drop that, that there was no coming back from, because even at that point, they were still doing essentially better numbers than Ron does now. Well, I think with uh, Vince Russo, again, I, in the book, I try not to inject a lot of my personal opinion, but I think you know, if if you ask me for my take on his tenure with WCW, I think the best way to look at it is it, it just wasn't a good fit. You know, you think about what he was known for in the WWF and and the type of uh, storylines that you know it would be very hard to disagree with the sentiment that it was very successful for him for quite a period of time. You know, you look at what he was known for, and then you look at what WCW was known for, and what actually they were able to do, you know, on the basis of being a Turner company, it was a much different environment than being on USA Network. It's quite puzzling, really, that and I think Alan Sharp is, is quoted in the book, former WCW head of public relations. He's quoted in, in the book as saying, you know, you, you bring in the guy who's known for all of these raunchy, over-the-top storylines, and immediately, you know, week one, you put handcuffs on him. So I think in fairness to, to him and also Ed Ferraro, you know, you would you would have to sort of uh, highlight that as well. Having said that, you know, if if you look at what the overall impact of his tenure with WCW was, obviously you'll see, and again, as you mentioned, the numbers are, are laid out in the book. Um, that the the key factor that really declined was people's willingness to pay to see the product. Yes, there are other factors that come into that. Right. You know that that those pay per view events had to be marketed; they had to be advertised. There's, there's all sorts of other things that may influence, you know, uh, the eventual buy rate. 
Um, but the fact was, you know, that the pay-per-view numbers in particular from about October of 99, really all the way until the end of WCW's existence, completely fell off a cliff. And no one was really able to figure out, you know, okay, how do we actually get these people to spend money to watch the the big payoff once a month, which they were able to do very successfully up until really, again, that time frame we mentioned before, around the spring of 99, people were still very willing and able to do that. And so that was also a huge factor in this as well is, let's put the ratings to a side for a second, just look at the pay-per-view buy rates and what happened. End of 99, 2000, 2001, just unbelievable how much of their paying audience WCW actually lost during that time. Right. And I, and I, th- I guess part of that would be just people knew, like the endings would always be the same. And, and the, mm-hmm. the, you know, I would go back and watch some of these shows because like with the Vince Russo era at the time, I remember thinking fondly of it as a kid, you know, I was like, whatever, 16, 17, whatever I was, I was just like, what is Turner's problem? These are such fun shows. This is, And I went back with like adult eyes and, and, and like, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh my God, not only is this terrible, this is just purely from a storytelling standpoint. It's just incredibly inconsistent. Nothing makes sense, you know? So it's like hard to follow even. I think I'm doing this off memory now, but I think at one point this is laid out in the book. You, you look at the first three pay-per-views of the, if you remember when they brought back Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff, you know, and that was supposed to be the, you know, this was going to be the dream team that was going to bring WCW back to number one. You know, we're talking April, April of 2000. If you look at the way the pay-per-views ended in April, May, and June of 2000. So the the first three pay-per-views, okay, after this change in direction and this, this new philosophy that's going to bring WCW back, you had Spring Stampede in April where, the end of the show is Kimberly turns on on DDP, so we have a shock, a shocking heel heel turn. Okay, so that now we go to Slamboree the next month, the Triple Cage, if people remember, and you have David Arquette shockingly turn on again Diamond Dallas Page. So we, we've had two shocking heel turns, two pay per views in a row. So now we go to uh, June, and at the end of the pay per view in June, which Fans may remember, and again, this is kind of laid out in the book as well, WCW had hyped up this big surprise. That's that's actually the, the phrase that they were using on a daily basis on their website. You know, there's going to be a big surprise that is going to completely shock not only the wrestling world, but actually the entertainment world. And Vince McMahon himself is going to be powerless to, to stop this surprise from happening. And the end of that third show in June, Great American Bash, Goldberg comes out and turns heel in a shocking swerve on Kevin Nash. So we have three pay-per-views, you know, to your (laughs) point, following the exact same pattern. So now, obviously, what becomes shocking moving forward is not a heel turn at the end of a pay-per-view. You know, right. So, yeah, it was shocking when there wasn't a swerve at the end of the main. I've, as you're saying this, I, I'm just, I remember this, living this and being like, oh, God, like, just give me a clean finish. Right. <laughs> and, and I think, again, you know, uh, and again, I try to um, separate myself from going too far in the weeds with this stuff because I do have a tremendous amount of respect for people in the wrestling business. And I, you know, I do make it clear, like, you know, I never wrote any of these shows. I wasn't part of it. So again, I'm looking at it from an outsider's point of view, but just to look at it from a logical point of view, you've got three shows ending up the exact same way three months in a row. And also the 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 manner by which those shocking heel turns, quote unquote, was executed. You know, a lot of times this stuff would be would be telegraphed. So even a you know a seven or eight year old fan watching at home would see exactly what was about to happen next. 
So I think that that redundancy of, you know, everyone's turning on everyone and um, we think this is going to happen, but all of a sudden, you know, this guy's going to hit someone with a chair and, you know, oh, we haven't seen this 50 times. Now he's going to pivot and hit the other guy with the chair in the middle of the ring. Right. <laughs> you know, it was not only the frequency, but it was also, I think, again, from an outsider's point of view, the the execution which really left a lot to be desired. You know, there were so many reboots. There were so many false starts. There were so many, you know, this Monday, everything's going to change. The world's going to change. We're going to shock everyone. We're going to surprise everyone. That really, they sort of devalued their own currency in terms of fans taking any of that stuff seriously. By the time you got really to the to the midpoint of 2000, it was like the whole show was really a shadow of its uh, former self. And, and, you know, like as you were saying that, I feel like that, moment after great american bash was another steep drop for wcw in terms of fan interest because right after that goldberg heel turn which i remember at the time nobody bought no everyone's like like it wasn't like oh this is so shocking it was oh this is stupid <laughs> you know it, it was it was comparable almost to like but worse than like austin's heel turn after wrestlemania 17 nobody bought goldberg as a heel but even worse after that like a week later you know he busts up a, a limo window with his bare hand to show how tough he is and injures himself and is essentially now rendered useless for six months like they couldn't even fit do the storyline because he injured himself and then he 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 was gone but he came back the storyline was long over by the time that ended i think if if memory serves i could be wrong i think the uh the, the limo thing that was the end of 99 and then i think he was out until late april may but to your point the the heel turn itself did fizzle out very very quickly yeah you know within within a number of weeks pretty much it was it was dropped you know, I think he had a, a, a small period where he was kind of a tweener. You know, he's kind of like a, a badass baby face who could kind of go either side. And then I might be misremembering. You're right. Oh, no, it's fine. And then eventually he, you know, he went back to his old uh, character. Right. But I think um, when I think about something like that, what it, what it makes me think of is having the opportunity to speak about really the psychology of wrestling with someone like a, a Kevin Sullivan, for example. You know, I, I, I had, I, and I'll, I'll explain how this relates. You know, I had a chance to speak to Kevin Sullivan for, for a couple of hours on a couple of different occasions. And, you know, I remember him talking about the infamous Hulk Hogan heel turn and him describing, you know, why did that result in such a passionate reaction from the crowd? You know, and, and again, from my point of view as a layman, I'm looking at it as well. You know, it's, it's just a, a shocking turn. No one thought he would do that. And I remember Kevin Sullivan really describing all of the different um, factors that came into play there. You know, the fact that you had the guy who was most identified with the WWF joining these, these other two guys who had recently exited the WWF, the fact that he was doing it to Randy Savage and people, you know, maybe instinctively or maybe explicitly knew that there was some real life animosity between the two. The fact that if you're sort of a, a, a smart fan, for lack of a better word, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, there's no way Hogan's going to do this. There's no way he's going to give up the merchandising money and, and the adulation of being the good guy and, 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 and everything he does for children. There's no way he's going to throw that away and, and, and turn to the dark side and, and many other things as well. You know, I'm only touching on the surface here, but my point is contrast that to the Goldberg turn. You know, I think what happened was WCW was under so much pressure to turn things around, not in three months or six months or two years or five years, but in a week, uh, a lot of times, you know, from one show to the next, that it was kind of this concept of, 
let's just take something that's worked before, you know, our, our biggest baby face at the time or the baby face who has the most sort of cachet. Let's turn him heel. And that in and of itself, whether it makes sense or not, whether there are those underlying, fact, underlying factors at play, whether there's actually any connection between the person who's doing it to the person they're doing it to, that doesn't matter because what's important is we, we're presenting a shocking turn at the end of the show. And so it was pretty predictable. And it is pretty predictable when you look back on it to see you know, what, what the reaction was. It, was. it was very, very sort of ho-hum at the time. But I think that was sort of indicative of their thinking at the time. You know, We just need one big angle, one more shocking swerve, and all of a sudden the ratings will go to a seven within a week, forgetting <laughs> all, of the, all of the groundwork that had to be laid you know, for that Hogan turn. And we haven't even touched on, you know, the, the the fifteen plus years of, you know, being that Hulk Hogan character, or the or the the decade plus, you know, all of all of those things that had to go into that having the impact that it did. Right, and even with WWE or WWF at the time, I remember they were doing way better shows than Nitro for maybe at least a year before the ratings mm. responded in turn, and then they were off to the races. Mm -hmm. With Kevin Sullivan, one thing, I really developed a new respect for him reading the book, just in terms of him discussing how he had to wrangle all these egos and convince these people that something that might necessarily seem not the best for their character is the best for their character and best for business. And you could really see how, you know, while they might have had the best thing ever booked, mm -hmm. if Hogan doesn't want to do it, it's not how it's contracted actually not happening. So I thought I thought that was another very revelatory moment that you really have to take a step back and think like you have to convince these people to do these things. That's right. And I think it gives you an appreciation, doesn't it, again, of all of the intricacies involved here, because anyone can sit down with a piece of paper and say, well, let me go back in uh, in time and book how WCW should have treated, you know, 1999. And let me let, let me move all the, the chess pieces around and God, they were such idiots. They should have just followed this formula and it would have worked out. And that's completely <laughs> disregarding the, 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 the human element. You know, we're, we're talking about this, you know, this, this business more than anything. I think it's a, it's a business of um, people and how you interact with those people and how you manage uh, the various egos and interpersonal conflicts and petty jealousies and backstabbing and all that kind of stuff. And let's not forget that these people that you're, you know, writing these brilliant storylines out for have the ability to make your vision look like crap on live television, you know? So right. you better sort of massage those egos and, and, and treat them fairly and make them feel that, that they're getting the upper hand or they will shortly get the upper hand because they have the ability to actually take your vision and make it go from looking like a million bucks to next to nothing. So, you know, I think, again, that's that's something that, that I learned from from doing this is to try to take that into account when I look back on some of the things that worked or didn't work. The fact that it wasn't as easy as writing it down on a piece of paper and all of a sudden everyone's going to carry out your wishes uh, to the nth degree. It was much more complicated than that. Uh, as, as we're winding down, I have uh, two more questions, basically. Sure. But uh, one thing I, uh, that was also very – that I – up until reading your book, I always wondered about was as Eric Bischoff, as they were just about to give him the keys to the castle with, with Fusion Media. And, and it was something, as a fan, I was very much hoping for and looking forward to. I did not want WCW to go out of business as much as I – didn't necessarily like it from what I remember the last few weeks since they were on such a shoestring budget. I feel like they kind of got rid of all the egos and they were 
kind of putting forward a, a more competent show with not as big names. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, and, and I think that was intentional because Bishop was intentionally making people go off TV with the idea that they would have a big pay-per-view. I believe it was called The Big Bang. Correct. Two months after. And I was always like, what was the plan for the pay-per-view? What, what was the idea? And and in a way, I was like, what's wrong with you, Rob? There was no plan because <laughs> that's essentially what happened. They're, they did, They had no idea what it was. Well, I think uh, broadly speaking, you know, if you remember, they were doing this storyline at the time where all of the baby faces were being sent packing by Scott Steinem, you know, and I think the the plan in broad strokes was we're going to bring back all of these people, uh, maybe with some additional surprises as well at this Big Bang pay-per-view. But based on, you know, my understanding, at least of, of how things operated back then, I think you're probably, you know, pretty accurate in terms of saying, I don't know if there was much more thought that was put into it beyond that, at least as of the time that WCW was sold or about to be sold, you know, in mid to late March of 2001. You know, I think that was probably something that once this deal is finalized and once we have the building blocks in place, now we can turn our attention to really, you know, finalizing the details of the creative plans for that pay-per-view. So I, I don't know if if there was really anything more to it than that um at least you know by that particular point in time right yeah well one thing i will credit eric bischoff with he is very much an innovator and and in some ways doesn't get the credit he deserves i mean just strictly speaking with just he should be getting royalties on any (laughs) nwo merch that's sold which he's not getting but beyond that though just how he innovated uh certain production things you know essentially bringing a pay-per-view every week and and another thing i think he innovated was trying to bring in rock acts into the wrestling mm-hmm. world and mm-hmm. doing it in a way that wwe never quite really did uh for example they brought in kiss and they licensed the i'm sure they blew a lot of money on licensing the gene simmons makeup to have a wrestler with the idea of doing a big concert for New Year's 1999, which uh, eventually everyone told him, <laughs> you know, like business, like logistically just would be impossible to do. Uh, so they, so they didn't end up doing it. But even beyond that, you know, they brought in Megadeth. They brought in all these rock acts. Like, how do you think the connection helps between the rock world and the wrestling world? Which is something I feel this podcast is the overarching theme of it, just to kind of bring it all together. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, what you'd have to say Eric Bischoff recognized at that time was if we are going to present a wrestling show with matchups between wrestlers for the entirety of the two or three hour telecast, then we're probably going to attract a fair amount of wrestling fans, but our appeal is probably going to stop there. And we could probably have a debate in terms of the extent to which that is happening today. You know, I think you have a very passionate, very informed, very, um, you know, educated fan base who who are watching wrestling and and, uh, are so loyal to tuning in every single week. But I'm not so sure that uh, wrestling has the same appeal now as it did back then. For some of the reasons that you mentioned, bringing in um, some of those rock and roll acts, incorporating, you know, personalities from other forms of of entertainment incorporating you know athletes if you think about dennis rodman and and carl malone and the tag team match that they were involved in um so on and so forth you know that was all done i think and then taking it too far with jay leno (laughs) well exactly 100 (laughs) percent. but but all of those things i think were done with the intent of you know we're, we're giving 
more and more people an opportunity to sample the program. You know, maybe a uh, Dennis Rodman fan who wants nothing to do with wrestling is going to tune in to see his appearances on Nitro. And maybe, you know, by the time Rodman's time with us wraps up, maybe there's a chance we may, may be able to keep that fan and maybe actually convert them to one of these loyal people who are going to tune in every single week. So, you know, with with my limited, you know, knowledge of rock, you would be the expert on that, but I think you could say there was probably a lot of synergy during that time, you know, between some of the themes in in wrestling and some of the things that you would see uh, you know, in the rock world. Um, you know, I think it probably was a good fit for that time, but you know, I think along with the changes that have happened inside of wrestling, I think some of the wider uh, changes that have occurred in terms of how we consume entertainment now and the fact, fact that everything's become so fragmented, you know, I, I think wrestling is going to really struggle to have that kind of broad mainstream appeal in the future anytime soon. But then again, if you speak to a lot of people, they'll, they'll say, well, it doesn't have to anymore. You know, you, you look up, you look at things like the WWE Network, um, and the fact that you've got you know in excess of a million people paying ten dollars a month to watch you know the, the treasure trove of classic shows and, and some of the new shows as well. You know, having that that niche following, that very devoted, dedicated following, has obviously been been very profitable for them. So. You know, as a fan, I think it's a shame that we don't see those kind of crossover attempts anymore. But again, maybe that's just part of the way that wrestling has evolved and and how a lot of things seem to have really sort of limited their, their appeal. Uh, I almost feel like the mainstream appeal is kind of happening outside of WWE now. I feel like with AEW, uh, just all of the wild action just a gif on Twitter that somebody retweets all of their friends seeing like, wow, this is insane. What is this? I need to check it out. You know, like perhaps something like that. But even with WDB, I feel they are incorporating more rock acts now and bringing them in to do certain themes. But outside of it, as I was saying, even with like Dark Side of the Ring with Vice, I feel like that's a way mm. to bring in uh, all these nostalgic fans to kind of remind them and maybe they'll check something else out. Uh, but But who knows? I think, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, the ratings for dark, I think it's, you know, obviously for what they were, they were going for and what the expectations are of that kind of program, it's been tremendously successful. Yeah. Um, I, I would just personally like to see wrestling re reach the point where, you know, I, I've said this before in, in another interview, I think if you think back to the time frame we've been talking about today, it was, it was very common back then to have, uh, sports fans who are also wrestling fans, for example. You know, you, right. you would uh, you would have people who are hardcore, you know, NBA or NFL fans who also religiously tuned in to WCW or the WWF. And that, that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, I think a lot of those people probably got into UFC and that was probably the end of their interest in, in wrestling. Um, maybe some other people moved on to other things. But, uh, you know, I, I would I would like to see a return to the days, I think, where wrestling would sort of continue to grow, you know, past this, um, you know, you mentioned AEW, you know, there's obviously a very dedicated following there of a million or so fans, maybe 900,000 fans who are going to tune in every single week. I'd love personally for the health of the business and for the, the subjective sort of quality of wrestling, I'd love to see the audience get even higher because I think there's a certain, there's, there's a certain quality that comes through when wrestling does go through a cycle where it does become mainstream. I think it forces the people behind the scenes and the people on the shows to really, really take that into account in terms of the way they're presenting the product, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me, you know, 
selfishly, I suppose, as a fan of of the product back then, you know, that's what I'd love to see, you know, happen. But I suppose uh, time will tell on that one. Well, as we wind down, I guess the only other thing I want to ask you, you alluded to it a little earlier, is uh, what what do you have planned uh, as your as your next book? Are you still working it out? Yeah, there's there's a few different things I'm working on, Rob. Uh, I think what I'm looking at is hopefully either by the end of this year or early next year. You know, I should have something to uh, to start advertising to people. You know, one thing that's been really helpful is I've received so many just very very positive and nice emails from people all over the world. You know, since this book came out, and a lot of times uh, people will mention in there an idea of maybe something to develop further or something that. Um, you know, could kind of complement this book or even something, uh, you know, not entirely related that may make a good follow-up. So there's definitely no shortage of ideas. It's just um, similar to this first book. Um, the real work is is putting it all together in a way that is is coherent and and makes sense to the reader. So I'll, I'll say stay tuned on that one. Okay, well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Like I said, the book is excellent and I highly recommend it to any fan of WCW. Once again, it's called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. I feel like I could have uh, spoken to you for another hour, Guy, just uh, mainly about how you got those old WCW live archives. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, feel free to give me a shout. If you want me to come on, I'd be uh, happy to do it again. Okay, yeah, that would would be great. I think think we could definitely fill out another episode with maybe questions from fans or something like that. Nice one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Guy. Have a Stay safe out there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you you too as well, Rob. I appreciate your time. It was uh, it was nice talking to you. Thank you again to Guy for being on the show. And hey, you know if you're locked in, you need something to read. Nitro is a great book to read and to get through and uh, learn a little bit about wrestling. Get your mind off what else is going on in the world. Well, WWE is going to try to help you get your mind off the troubles of the world this weekend with WrestleMania. The power and through. I've said it on the show previously, but you know, the more I watch these empty arena shows, WWE and AEW, uh, it's just not the same. It's 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 really kind of a bummer. It's more of like a reminder of of the current situation. And so I hope with WrestleMania in particular, since uh, most of this or all of it is is pre recorded and in the can kind of, I hope they livened it up and and, and created like a cool set or, or did something different where it's not just this open empty gym that they're wrestling in. I hope it's something a little more than that, especially because it's WrestleMania and it, typically the WrestleMania pageantry and the spectacle is is that's the show. That's really WrestleMania is the giant set and the unique venue that they perform in so I, I hope there's at least some of that like a cool set it doesn't have to look like an arena it should just be a set you know like why does it, they should just completely change it up uh that's my opinion and i hope they do something unique and fun and ultimately i hope they they keep it tight <laughs> you know it's two nights which i guess is smart a seven hour empty arena show i don't know if i can do but also i don't know if i can do two three and a half hour empty arena shows Let's try to keep it to two and a half hours. That would be amazing. The short, like, leave us wanting more because these empty arena shows, just after a few minutes, it's just kind of like, oh, all right, well, what's the point of that? You know, like, who? I don't know. It, it, it's really not the same without the audience. The audience adds so much to it. At least that's my opinion. But let's go through the matches. We got WWE champ Brock Lesnar versus Drew McIntyre. 
this was supposed to be Drew's big crowning moment, but I don't know. I feel like uh, it would. I guess he should win, but it would it would just feel feel weird if he wins and he doesn't have a big coronation. But they might also just do it anyway, just because it's WrestleMania and and the good guys win at WrestleMania. But I could also I, I feel like Brock might win this. One. I don't know. It, it, this one is the hardest one uh, of all of them, I, I would say. But I'm leaning. See, I was going to say I'm leaning towards Brock, but even as I'm, the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, well, am I? I don't know. I'll say Brock. Then uh, Universal Championship, Goldberg versus Roman Reigns is the advertised match, but that didn't happen because Roman Reigns is smart. The guy is recovering from leukemia, and uh, he's immunocompromised. He's going to sit it out. Shouldn't have even been traveling and uh, heading over there. It's going to be Goldberg versus Braun Strowman. And, I mean, I would, I would, I don't know. <laughs> this is another one where I guess Braun would win because Goldberg is pretty expensive, but what a what a weak coronation for Braun Strowman. And, and with WWE, this is like Braun Strowman should have been world champion a year or two ago already. Like now he's kind of like past his prime. <laughs> and and that's always, they always do it when it's like a little too late. That's always, that was always the WWE MO. I feel it was like that with Jeff Hardy too uh, a decade ago. Yeah, I guess Braun is winning that one. Undertaker versus AJ Styles in a boneyard match. It's going to be very awkward looking at a graveyard with what's going on in the world, but hopefully they do something cool with it. Uh, hopefully it's a little out of the ordinary, and because it's pre-taped and it's not even in the venue, hopefully it's a little more cinematic. And, and I really hope WWE steps it up and does something a little more out of the box here. Uh, but Undertaker's going to win this. Uh, John Cena versus The Fiend. If The Fiend doesn't win this, he is tanked completely. Like, after that dumb loss to Goldberg, and now John Cena, who probably won't even be wrestling again this year, if at all. Uh, if he would, it would probably be at, like, SummerSlam or something like that. But it has to be The Fiend. The Fiend has to win this match. Edge versus Randy Orton, last man standing. Again, I hope they do something a little out of the box here, a little fun. These two guys are very creative, so I can see them doing it. But it has to be Edge. Edge has to win this one. It's his big comeback, his big return. Has to be Edge. Becky Lynch versus Shayna Baszler. Becky has been champ for a year, and uh, she's kind of beaten everyone on the main roster. So it almost feels like Shayna Shayna should win this to kind of continue the feud. This this is the kickoff to their feud, not the end of it. So for it to keep going, Shayna should win, and and Shayna should be the badass, and Becky uh, needs to come from behind and win it back, uh, you know, at SummerSlam or Survivor Series or something like that. Then we have the Women's Championship match with Bailey, Sasha Banks, Lacey, Tamina, and Naomi. And for me, I like I'm such a Sasha Banks fan. I really want her to win, and it seems that's how the storyline is going. And, and then her and Bailey can feud, and and I just want to see Sasha's champion. I want her to have a good run where she has more than one successful title defense. Then we have NXT champion Rhea Ripley versus Charlotte Flair. This is a, this is a very interesting match because it's like you would think Rhea Ripley should win this and it kind of establishes her as a big star. But this is WrestleMania and Charlotte Flair has been doing really well at WrestleMania. You remember she ended Asuka's streak two years ago? I kind of feel like uh, Charlotte Flair might win this and she might just be the headliner on NXT. I think that might be what's going to happen. Kevin Owens versus Seth Rollins. I'm going to go with Kevin Owens here just because... Why not? I see champ Sami Zayn versus Daniel Bryan. I would say it's Daniel Bryan. This is a fun little program that they've, they've done, and, and I like all the interaction. I like that Bryan has Drew Gulak and Shorty G. Chad Gable is on, on Twitter trying to lobby his way into it. 
That would be a cool uh, trio feud. So, But I think Daniel Bryan's going to win. SmackDown Tag Team Championships are being advertised as The Miz and John Morrison versus The Usos versus The New Day. And uh, I heard The Miz actually got sick. So it's probably like John Morrison versus one of The Usos in a ladder match. I don't know about that one, but I imagine John Morrison retains. Raw Tag Team Champions, Street Profits versus Austin Theory and Angel Garza. I don't know what the hell Austin Theory is doing on this show. They must be really low on available talent to be recruiting an NXT rookie to be on freaking WrestleMania. But what an opportunity for Austin. I don't know. Street Profits win this one. I can't see them them losing this. Elias versus King Corbin. I couldn't care less. I'm guessing Elias because Rob Gronkowski is hosting, and I feel like this is how they're going to use him. Aleister Black versus Bobby Lashley. Uh, I have no idea why this is on the card. But uh, I'm going to go with Aleister Black. Otis versus Dolph Ziggler. I really hope that Otis wins and, and the, the the angle happens where Mandy is with Otis. Uh, otherwise, it would, it would just be kind of kind of a bummer and, and, and too big of a bummer right now in today's times. <laughs> and the WWE Women's Tag Team Championships are on the line. Kabuki Warriors versus Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross. I hope that the Kabuki Warriors retain. Honestly, these belts are a complete afterthought, but... I've really been enjoying them as a champion, so I hope they retain. And overall, I hope WrestleMania is good. I want it to be good. I want to be entertained. I don't want to be bored by it or thinking about how how good it could have been. So, uh, but you know, uh, I, I'm rooting for for WWE. I'm rooting for these performers to these pro wrestlers <laughs> to to do a good job. And then, you know, we'll see. I'll be probably tweeting. You could you could tweet along with me and follow along on. Twitter. Rob Injection is my handle. Squared Circle Pet, no E in circle for Twitter. You can, of course, also check out all the archives. We have tons of episodes. In recent weeks, we had Jimmy Havoc, Darby Allen, Brian Posehn, uh, lots of cool interviews in the past as well, like Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega, Eric Bischoff, Corey Taylor from Slipknot, Maynard from Tool. Check out Squared Circle Pit, metalinjection.net slash Squared Circle Pit. We'll see you in a few weeks.